episode of Hipster Baseball Podcast, HBP. I'm DeCarlo Calloway. And I'm Dorian. And on today's podcast, we play baseball on the beach, get whiplash from the American League Championship Series, play mariachi music in Los Angeles, ask Miss Cleo for World Series predictions, watch the resurrection of Shadow Man, and take catnip with the LA Dodgers. So I want to start off this episode like we do every episode by... You know, introducing what it is that we're drinking. And today I am drinking uh, Robert Mondavi Private Selection Cabernet Sauvignon. I'm not drinking the whole bottle. I'm just drinking a glass of it. And, uh, you know, with uh, water back on there. You know, chasing it with a little water. Excuse me. So that's keeping it cold day. I feel like red wine is a nice way to, to wind it down. And, you know, to start off the week. So what about you, Dorian? What are you drinking today? I like the touch there. Private. What's the difference between reserve and private when it comes to wines? Do you know that? I have no idea. It, you know what I know is, is just one is more expensive than the other. But I'm having, uh, it's called Alpha Water. It's premium hard seltzer. Lime and cucumber taste. So it's refreshing, even though summer is gone. Fall is definitely here in the Northern Hemisphere. And it's from a rewind brewery because I had, had them, I don't know, about a month ago, ago month or so ago. New Realm Brewing Company in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And I want to talk just a little bit about some major league baseball players from the Ham- from Hampton Roads area, Virginia Beach area, because they're all within like a half an hour from each other. Hampton Roads is about 45 minutes west of Virginia Beach. The first person that comes to mind is Chris Taylor, the Los Angeles Dodgers hero of Game 5 of the National League Championship Series, who hit not one, not two, three home runs and saved for one night the Dodgers season so he uh Chris Taylor went to Cox High School and he also attended the University of Virginia which means not only is he a tremendous baseball player but he's also a smarty pants also Justin Tup Justin Tupton Justin Upton who's an outfielder with the Los Angeles Angels he attended Great Bridge High School and he was born in Norfolk Brandon Lau, even though Justin Upton didn't play in the playoffs, but Brandon Lau did. He's the second. He's an infielder for the Tampa Bay Rays. He uh, he attended Nansamond, Nansamond River. I don't know. He attended some high school in Newport News. He's from there. Ryan Zimmerman, who just retired, the first baseman for the Washington Nationals, he attended Kellum High School, also the University of Virginia, Smarty Pants. Lastly, someone who's not as famous as Ryan Zimmerman, Justin Upton, Chris Taylor, Neil Ramirez. You know why I put him on this list? Why is that? Because homeboy graduated from Kempsville High School in Virginia Beach. He's bounced around the majors. He's no longer the majors, but he's currently pitching for the Mariachis de Guadalajara in the Mexican League. So that means he also pitches in the Winter League, which I'm very excited for. I'm very excited for the World Series, but I'm also very excited for the Latin Winter League. So maybe I'll watch a couple of Neil Ramirez's games for the Mariachis de Guadalajara in the Mexico. Salud to Ramirez and all the other players who are from the West Hampton, West Hampton, Hampton Roads. Hampton Roads. The current baseball players and the future baseball players. Yes, and future basketball players and football players. Hampton Roads has a, a reputation for producing just overall athletes, no matter what sport. I mean, think of Allen Iverson, think of uh, 
No, Michael Vick didn't come out there. No, he came out the next one, man. But Allen Iverson is definitely another one that you think of when you think of uh, greats that came out of Hampton Roads in that area. Like Allen Iverson, like Michael Vick, they have social media. Your favorite podcast, HBP, also has social media. Give us a follow on our Twitter account, at HBP4040, and our still mildly new Instagram account. We've had it for about a month now. Very simple to follow. Hipster Baseball Podcast on Instagram. And ladies and gentlemen, we're going up to the conclusion of, of the baseball playoffs. I want to start off by talking about the Boston Red Sox and Houston Astros American League Championship Series. Carlo, what do you think of this series that the Houston Astros, the cheating Astros took four games to do? You know what? I thought it was a really good series. I think um, for Boston, it gave their fans something to be excited about. It, it showed that they have a really strong squad to, to coming into the next season um, and gave them something to cheer about. You know what? It is kind of nice to see as a Yankee fan, Boston fans getting their hopes up and then, you know, boom, it completely collapsing on them. So that that's essentially what I took away from that. And, uh, you know, considering that the Astros really don't, you know, their pitching is, uh, you know, they don't have their real, like, stars this season in their offenses in particular. It gives them an opportunity to really, you know, hopefully try to, you know, overcome their little, uh, you know, cheating uh, reputation, you know, this go around. But, you know, of course, it's always going to stick with them. But. You know, shout out to the Astros for winning that series. Really good series. That's a very evil thing that you're doing with the Boston Red Sox. All things considered, it is almost Halloween. And so you want them to get a little bit of hope, and then you snatch it away from them like you know, the ghost of Christmas past. I don't know. No, ghost of Christmas future. He was the one who showed Scrooge his, like, fate, and he was, like, dead. And he was like, this is like a spirit. And he's like, Woo! You remember that in, like, uh, a Christmas Carol? I think next year we need to do a Halloween special. We haven't done a Halloween special. I totally forgot about that. But anyways, it doesn't matter. It's the American League Championship Series. I, DiCarlo said that this is a whiplash series because it was all over the place. It looked, if you blinked, it looked like the Astros were going to crush the Red Sox. You blinked again, it looked at the Red Sox were going to crush the Astros. The Red Sox won two games, one nine to five and another one 12 to three. Two of the Astros' wins were by the scores of nine to two and nine to one, and only one game was decided by one run. It was basically one team dominating the other. It, there was, I didn't, I don't think there was much drama in this game, with the exception of possibly game five. And those, was, and you know the dumb like umpire calls, you know strikes and stuff like that, like balls and strikes in regards to that, those were like the main things that were controversial. I remember taking away from that series. Yeah, and one thing that's been playing out in the American League that continue throughout the American League playoffs, all of the all of the rounds, all of the all of the teams continued in this last round of the American League Championship Series is the horrible pitching. The American League has been play, has been the place where you go to watch teams run 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 up eight, 10, 12 scores, hit three, four home, home runs a game, and over the National League, it's all pitching. But not only do they have really – the Houston Astros have the best offense in Major League Baseball this past year, but some of the pitchings that they that they had to face was pretty bad. You think about Chris Sale from the Red Sox. Didn't they trade like a boatload of players for him about three years ago? And he didn't, he wasn't good at all. 
He pitched twice. One time he came out. No, the, the first time he came out, I think he pitched one inning. In the second game he pitched against the Astros, he only went two and two-thirds innings. And some of the Red Sox fans that I know were like, oh, he actually did really good tonight. That's on what, what a low bar. On what planet is pitching two and a two-third innings in a, in, a in a league championship series considered good? Apparently, when you're Chris Sale. <laughs> Apparently, but again, their their Boston Red Sox pitching sucked. Excuse my French. Their offense was awesome. Kike Hernandez, the center fielder for the Boston Red Sox, he was an animal. Uh, he was amazing with the glove in center field. He was amazing with the bat. The whole playoffs, he had a 408 average, five home runs. He was unbelievable. And one pitcher was actually good for the Red Sox was. Agent Zero, we talked about him a few episodes ago. Adam Ottavito, former New York Yankee, former, I don't know who he used to play for. It doesn't matter. He had a good postseason. No, he, he didn't have a good postseason. He had a great championship series against the Astros. Three appearances, four innings, didn't give up almost anything. He gave up one run. And again, in games two and three, that's when the Red Sox went on that grand slam-a-thon. It was almost like a home run derby when they hit but three grand slams in two games, which is like, which is the record for any round. Yeah, pretty crazy. And you're like, these guys are never going to stop scoring, and they're just going to breeze right into the playoff, to the playoffs, breeze right into the World Series. But that's what happens. You don't have any pitching. You yep. your offense goes back to normal. You're scoring four or five runs, but your offense is giving up a heck of a lot more. Excuse me, you're pitching. So yeah, it wasn't uh, a good uh, ratio going into it. And like they always say, pitching wins championships, man. As much as people try to not think about it and always want to think about how offense, at the end of the day, you need to have solid pitching, especially in the postseason, in order to take you over that hump. You can't be a championship team without solid pitching through the postseason. Like, name me one World Series championship team that got got a championship by having terrible pitching. Like, you can't. It's just not possible. Yeah, and uh, obviously we're not doing a breakdown of every single game. If you're listening to this, you're a baseball fan. You know, you may have not watched every single pitch, but you know what happens. You have the narrative of every game. On the flip side, it's not that the Astros pitching came out and showed off, showed out. They had some horrible pitching as well. Zach Greinke, we're poking fun at Chris Sale and his terrible outings, his short stints. Zach Greinke, he pitched in one game, went an inning and a third, didn't do anything. He, he I think he walked three or four play, uh, three or four batsmen. The the only reason the Astros are now in the World Series, well, because of the two teams, somebody had to win. But they had two really good pitching performances exactly when they needed it, and it, and the Red Sox didn't. And so that's why the the Red Sox are um, are not in the World Series. But overall, I think it's a, I think it's a all things considered, it's a successful season for the for the Red Sox with this yeah. lowercase s because they exceeded expectations they yeah. I didn't they, I don't they I think in their heart of hearts no no real normal objective Red Sox fan would expect them to get to game six of the American League Championship Series no I don't think so either but of course as soon as they started to accelerate then they had to take or you know get as much hope as they could possibly to hopefully push them over the hump but at the same time not completely you know not completely uh, dissatisfied with the fact that they got to those, you know, to that that height at this point. It's something to look forward to 
going in the next season, especially if they can really, you know, get some new pitching in there to help solidify that, you know, to help counterbalance that offense, especially in uh, high-pressure situations like these. Mariners can lead uh, championship series. So the Red Sox, they out, they, uh, they, they exceeded their expectations. I don't know what's, I don't know what's next for them. They have lots of things to come up. But hats off to the Houston Astros for winning this in six games. I said they were going to win in seven games. That's only because I wanted these two teams to wear each other out. One concerning thing, I'm not, I'm not skipping ahead here, but one concerning thing for the Houston Astros fans, and I think the team is Jose Altuve. Right now, he's having his worst postseason at bat with uh, on offense. And he's been in the postseason for five, six years in a row, whatever. He has a 200 average, eight strikeouts, and he has as many hits as strikeouts, eight. Hmm. This is not. This is a guy that you count on, maybe not to to take the entire burden of your of your postseason production, but you don't expect him to hit two hundred no, with no, eight no. strikeouts. No. So that's going to be something to look to look for uh, during the World Series against the National League champions, Atlanta Braves, which I know you were so happy about, like. For one, let, let's take into consideration that uh, predictions, yeah, that completely blew that out the way. And secondly, that you were, I think you were really right when you spoke about how Dave Roberts psychologically was coming into that series. Like, they put everything on the table with the San Francisco Giants, and we're not going to be able to really bring it when it came to the Braves. Uh, you're you're absolutely right. They and even even Dave Roberts himself admitted it when they not people use the word miraculous way too often, but when they really did something special in Game Three at home in LA, they were dead. I think they were down five to one. I forget the exact score. And now it's just all, the whole series is now a blur. But the Dodgers hit a home run. I think it was Cody Bellinger hit that three run home run. That really ignited the stadium. That's when in game three, TBS, who was showing the, the game, all of the red taillights leaving Dodger Stadium, like in the seventh inning, because no one believed like, this thing is over. The Braves are going to go up three nothing, and this series is going to be over real quick. At the post, in the post conference, in the post game conference, Dave Roberts said, We were on our backs. We were dead. We were dead. And it's completely understandable. Again, the Dodgers won 106 games in the year trying to chase down the San Francisco Giants the entire year. Then they had the high-pressure game of a single elimination wildcard game against the St. Louis Cardinals. Then they get pushed who to were, five. Who were one of the hottest teams at, like, ending the season, too? Yeah. They, they, the Cardinals went in scorching hot to the postseason. Having, they went on that crazy 15-, 16-game winning streak to even get to the postseason. Played them tough couple of breaks here and there the cardinals are playing the giants instead of the dodgers the dodgers then finally get the giants and it takes them five games until the very end of the ninth inning of game five and then they play the braves not that they're not not that they were rested but this is just this is a different braves team yeah. this is a different dodgers team and i love the competitiveness of this series in the national league between the atlanta braves and the la dodgers Versus those blowout games between Boston and Houston. In the National League, there were three games decided by one run. Three. 
and one game was decided by two runs. There was really only two blowouts of all the six games. There was only two blowouts and that exhaustion and that and also mismanagement by Dave Roberts in game two, the, they were, their pitching staff was depleted from the giant series game two. He brings in Julio Diaz, who was supposed to start game four, wears him out. Max Scherzer is fried from the giant series. Cause he said after, after the game two losses, he had, he had a dead arm. He didn't have it. Um, and another thing that I didn't like what Dave Roberts did, just as a baseball fan, obviously I was happy because I'm a Braves fan, but as a baseball fan, game three, I don't know if you remember this to Carlo, but Gavin Lux, the center, he's not a center fielder because the Dodgers have had so many injuries with uh, Max Muncy, Justin Turner. They're all out. Well, Justin Turner, you know, he only played a couple of games. They put Gavin Lux to center field. He'd only played there for about three games. And he made a really big error in the sun, not First off, he doesn't know center field that well. And then it was uh, it was like a three o'clock Pacific time game. So the sun is still right in your eyes. He drops a ball. The Braves take advantage and they get a big inning. And then he, he, I think he made two errors. Meanwhile, you have a gold glove center fielder for the Dodgers playing first base. People, playing first base is a lot easier than playing center field. I, again, I, I have a podcast. I don't get paid millions of dollars to coach the, to, to manage the Los Angeles Dodgers, but why put gold glove, one of the best athletes in the game, Cody Bellinger at first base. You don't, you know who used to play first base? Mark McGuire. You mm. don't need to be athletic. No. Put Bellinger in center field, give Gavin Lux first base. It's easy. Those mistakes do not happen. If Cody Bellinger is patrolling the center field. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it was just the uh, team that was physically out of it. It seems like the coaching staff was too, because that was a stupid ass move by the staff. It was a questionable move, and it, it almost cost them, but they actually did end up winning game three. But a young man like that, it, it affects you mentally. Yeah. It's like, I, I, I made a big boo-boo. I made a big mistake. Yeah, I may could, cost my that team. Could, that could ta- cost somebody their career. Like, I mean, like, sometimes yeah. there's no coming back from that. Yeah, they were, actually, they were talking about it on the TBS broadcast that, Later on in the game, after he made that huge blunder, he was still playing. He wasn't playing aggressive. He was very reactive. And you can't, in any sport, you can't just be playing reactive. It's, it's, it, it leads to injuries. It leads to mistakes. Nevertheless, the Dodgers still, I basically felt this whole series to Carlo was that the Braves made mistakes. The Dodgers made mistakes, but the Braves actually took advantage of those mistakes. And I was surprised having seen the Braves and the Dodgers face off three of the last four years in the playoffs. Wait a minute. This is a different team because normally the Dodgers would just pounce on you and they would, they would just kill you for making a mistake. And they just time and time again, they weren't taking advantage of the Braves mistakes when the Braves were taking advantage of the, of the Dodgers mistakes. And I, it was, so those first two games, the Braves take them because they were aggressive. They took advantage. And after that, I felt that the Dodgers weren't in the series because it was like boxing. The Braves put them in a corner and it was just body blows, not knockouts, just body blows, body blows. And you always felt that the Dodgers had to come back from something. They were never able to just get on top of the Braves and just pound them and dictate how the series was going to go. That was perfect, perfectly met, 
metamorphosis perfectly produced with their pitching. The, the pitching challenges that they got themselves into, the Dodgers did. I don't, I don't, um, it was weird seeing the Dodgers having to play reactive, not just Gavin Lux, but just overall the strategy and the way they were playing. Like they didn't have any energy. No, they were done. It was, it was really weird watching all six, six of those games and saying that's the world champions, but uh, they went through a tremendously stressful past a hundred and how many games did they play this year? 180 games. I don't even know, including playoffs. I mean, yeah, but I mean, it's not unusual to see championship caliber teams who, you know, are trying to defend their title, like, fit, you know, fizzle out because, you know, it takes a lot of work to be that consistent the previous year and to take that. And then to have to come back with the expectation and then, you know, to even exceed it, match it or exceed it. But then it's like, at some point, the Jets are just going to burn out and you're just going to be like, you know what? I don't think we even want to do this anymore. You know what I mean? It's like, I just want to go home. <laughs> so, yeah. I do want to give a shout out to, just like we talked about, Agent Zero, Adam Adovino for the Boston Red Sox, the, who was a relief pitcher for the Red Sox, the Los Angeles Dodgers relief pitcher, uh, Grutzar Gratterall. Holy schmoly. He's from Calabozo, Venezuela. Calabozo, Venezuela. This guy, he's in the regular season, not in the playoffs, but in the regular season of Carlo, he was clocked. One of his pitches was clocked at 102.5 miles an hour. Not only does he have an insane arm, he actually places the ball where he wants it. He can't. He came in off for in, in relief of game four. He came on tw- twice, actually. Two or three games he came in relief in this series. And he was lights out. I just watching him mow down brave after brave after brave. And that's one guy I'm happy that doesn't play for the Houston Astros. I, I don't think they have anybody like this kid. Because uh, Gratterall had he total in the National League Championship Series. He pitched four and a third innings. Gave up one hit. Gave up one earned run struck out four that the, he was just completely dominant and thank god we don't have to face you gratterall in the world series yeah but what i am going to miss about the dodgers is not baseball related but it's the music do you know that they have a mariachi band out in the outfield the dodgers invite some band called the mariachi garibaldi that's the name of the mariachi band mariachi garibaldi you know, periodically throughout the regular season. But in the postseason, they invite them to play every home game. And they're in the outfield. They play during the, before the games, in between innings, and after the game, if they win. Obviously, no one wants to be hearing happy music if your team loses. <laughs> but I really like that. I don't know if you got a chance to, saw, to see them. No, I caught a glimpse of it. It is nice and whimsical. It brings a nice effect. You know, it is always cool when you have stadiums that have those little, like, niche things. Maybe not niche things, but just something that is really, um, you know, particular to the team. And especially during playoff times, too. Like, it intensifies its effect. Like, I remember, like, going back to the Yankees back in the 90s, like, when you had the grounds crew who popped up in the YMCA. I mean, now it's so annoying. They still do it. And the guys have no vigor and, like, heart into it anymore. It's like, huh. But before, like when they first did it, it was like when the Yankees were starting to get into that dynasty, it was like so much effect. Like it was one of those things that galvanized the city. And, you know, having those little moments, it, it does do that. And so, yeah, having a mariachi band, it is pretty, it is very LA. 
I really like the fact that you put you you said that the the YMCA dance that the that the grounds crew of the New York Yankees did back in the '90s and still do. That reminds me, I was going to talk about this, and I forgot about that until you mentioned it. The Braves at home, the fans would do the tomahawk chop, and I was like, but that got canceled. No, at all. No, they <laughs> they still do it. They don't do the. They don't. It's not led by the announcers or anything, but the fans still do it. Uh, but it seems like a, it sounds to me like a pantomime. Like there's no oomph to it, like it was back in the '90s when it was still new. It was. I'm like, why? Why are the fans doing this? Like, stop this because there's no there's no energy behind it. Yeah, just cut it off. Like, uh, put the you know, like take it out of its misery. Come up with something new. To be fair, they brought out the tomahawk chop towards the the towards the latter portions of game six when it started to look we're like we're six six outs away from the world series we're three outs away and then that's the only time i've heard this in a long time i mean people were really into the tomahawk chop before it was just like ah, ah, ah like just what i just i guess i remember it when it used to shake the stadium Back in like when it, like uh, Fulton County Stadium yeah. back in the nineties. Oh my goodness, man, that was an experience. That's what I'm saying. Now it's just like people hear like, oh, this is what we're supposed to do. It doesn't have the same vigor, the same energy, but it did at the very end of that game when they closed out, when the Braves closed out the Los Angeles Dodgers. So that was a good, good thing that you brought up about the YMCA and the lack of heart of the groundskeepers because they're like the Yankees, just ah, YMCA, whatever. But oh, it's so bad, man. Like, I mean, it's <laughs> terrible. It's just like, dude, like, you could tell, dude, it's like, they still got us doing, like, you see this, they still got us doing shit. I just want to go smoke a cigarette. Like, that's, that's like the image you see on the guys. And it's just like, yeah, like, yeah, it's so like, yeah. But yeah, even when the Yankees are winning championships or going to the playoffs, it still doesn't have any vigor. They just need to scrap that damn thing. It's terrible. <laughs> so, the Dodgers have the mariachi band and the Braves, they have a drum, a drumline band called the heavy hitters. The difference is that obviously my, like the Carlos said, mariachi is a very LA thing because of the, the, the massive Mexican culture and Mexican population in LA in the deep South, like Atlanta, you have drumlines bands because it's part of the, the African-American community culture. But what I don't like is that the drum, the, the heavy hitters is what they're called. They only play outside, so it's not actually like in the stadium, like the mariachi band. But it's still it's something. So if you go to the new World Series games in Atlanta, you'll be seeing the heavy hitters play outside of the stadium as part of the pregame festivities. Mm. And music is what music is what we need to bring in our favorite Brooklynite, Jamaican soothsayer. No, that's wrong. No soothsayer. Suicide, yeah. Miss Cleo time, aka World Series prediction time. How do you now for your World Series predictions, people? What you think the Braves are gonna win? That's what right, ma'am. Uh, we're we're calling up Miss Cleo from the great beyond to give her inputs and our inputs between the Atlanta Braves and the Houston Astros. I'm gonna go with mine first. You will go with your predictions, and then we'll break it down a little bit, expand on it. I think, knock on wood, I genuinely think that the Braves are going to win the World Series in five games, Ooh. and the MVP is going to be first baseman Freddie Freeman. Mm. What do you think? 
I think Braves in seven, and I also think Freeman is MVP of the series. I think he's due because Freddie Freeman is. The first two games against the Dodgers, he was horrible. He started out the series 0 for 8 with seven consecutive strikeouts, and then he turned it around. And it was it was incredible that the Braves won the first two games with absolutely zero production from Freddie Freeman. It was God sent. What didn't I just say? People use miracle too often. It was a very special moment. Yeah. It was gutsy that the Braves were able to win the first two games with Freddie Freeman doing jack. So yes, my Miss Cleo and I had a at a production meeting, and this is why when I looked into the crystal, I'm about to say the orange ball, the crystal ball of why the Astros are going to lose to the Braves in five games. Again, the Astros have very little pitching. They have an awesome offense, as we've seen by all the crazy runs they scored against the Red Sox and also all the runs that they put up against the Chicago White Sox in the divisional round. But my God, that, that pitching is horrible. It's horrible. They already they started the season without Justin Verlander, who's probably a Hall of Fame pitcher. Yeah. Tommy John surgery. Lance McCullers, who is who's been their best pitcher, he strained his flexor pronator muscle. This is a family show, no cursing here. It's his basically the flexor pronator muscle is in it's it's a muscle in your forearm right by your elbow. And really the only way to treat that is complete rest or get uh corticosteroid shots. Mm. Uh, that doesn't sound like very healthy for long-term to be no, pumping your body with corticosteroid shots. So he strained this against the Boston Red Sox in the American League, National, uh, American League Championship Series. I forget which game it was, but I think it was, it, must, it was early. I think it was game two or three. I really don't remember right now. And then Zach Greinke, they signed him like two years ago, former Cy Young winner. Or did he win the Cy Young? I think he did. Yeah, he won the Cy Young. Like I said, he had a horrible outing. Dusty Baker has so much faith in his like $35 million man, Zach Greinke, that he used him once in the championship series. And he blew up one in the third innings, gave up two earned runs, walked three three batsmen in one in the third innings. And he got pulled. It's like, all right, you don't got it. It's over. Like, that's it. The only reason the Astros moved forward is because they had good outings from Luis Garcia and Framber Valdez. They both had good ser- good pitching games in game five and game six. But in the beginning of the series, they were horrible. Luis Garcia's first appearance, appearance against the Red Sox, he pitched one inning. He gave up one, two, three, four, five earned runs in one inning. Framber Valdez, in, his, in game one, he pitched two and two-thirds innings, gave up six hits, two earned runs. The volatility of the Astros pitching is almost like a tech stock. It's just, it's too much. You can't expect that volatile of that volatile and bad of a pitching staff to get you to the finish line. No, and you can't expect them to also just turn it on instantaneously as you switch from one series to the next either. I mean, within, within the same series, they were, were Luis Garcia and Fran Valdez were horrific. And then they came back and were really good. But that, that I, I don't, I, I do not believe at all in the Astros pitching staff at all. Their offense is awesome, but they're also stepping up. The Astros offense is stepping up in weight class facing the Atlanta Braves pitching staff. Saying that the Braves don't even have the best pitching staff 
in the playoffs. That was the Milwaukee Brewers, who were absolutely disgusting. The second best pitching staff was the LA Dodgers, who were riddled with injuries, but they still had a Walker Bueller, Max Scherzer, Julio Diaz. And then the Braves are probably a third. All the best pitching has been in the National League. That's why all those, those games have been so low scoring. It's not because they don't have good offense in the National League. That those pitchings, those pitching, the pitching staff is so amazing. But anyway, so that's that's really why I think it is. But what I what I do like is we always love history. DiCarlo and I love history. I actually was rooting just a little bit for Boston to come out because I wanted to be the Boston Red Sox against the Atlanta Braves. And those of you who know, back in episode 52, I, we did this whole little thing about the Atlanta Braves 150th birthday, who started off in the city of Boston. So the Boston Braves used to play for 50 something years right alongside of the, the Boston Red Sox. It would have been awesome to have that yeah. historical narrative, I guess. But um, I do like the fact that Henry Aaron hired the current Braves manager, Henry Aaron, one of the greatest baseball players of all time, former Milwaukee and Atlanta Braves player. He hired the current Braves manager, Brian Snicker, all the way back in 1981. Brian Snicker has been with the Braves for 40 plus years. I love that the Houston Astros manager, Dusty Baker, he played with the Braves. He started his career off with the Braves from 1968 to 1975. And he was on deck when Henry Aaron broke Babe Ruth's record for most home runs ever. And Babe Ruth played one his final season when his body was completely broken down. But it's still a nice little trivia thing. Babe Ruth's final season, he played with the Boston Braves back in 1935. So, oh, and then also lastly, the Houston Astros hitting coach, Tony Snicker, is Brian Snicker's son. I always like to see these little connections between teams. Yeah, and also kind of look at those little ones. Like when you have the Snicker connection, it's like somebody's walking away with a championship. So that's kind of nice. But The family also, will win. Yes, Aww. the family will win. But then, of course, there's one. Like I could always, I could see like Brian Snicker like totally like ha you know like shoving it in his son's face like that would be funny because you know dad's I, always like that. I don't know Brian Snicker's wife's name, but I'm sure she's gonna. I'm sure she's gonna be on TV all World Series, and they're. Gonna, I'm sure she's gonna be yeah. wearing like an Atlanta Braves hat and a Houston Astros jersey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, it was kind of like you remember the Super Bowl between the Baltimore Ravens and the San Francisco the Forty Niners. The Harborough, yeah, Harborough, yeah. It was it was a John and uh, John and Jim. Yeah, yeah. Their, their parents were like, we just want them to be. I don't know, whatever. So, anyways, uh, yeah, it's kind of like that, kind of. But just a few more things is uh, I this is the Braves' tenth World Series appearance. I love that the Braves have played in as a franchise. They played in Boston, Milwaukee, and Atlanta, and they have appeared in multiple World Series in all three cities, and they have won a World Series in all three cities. Very cool. And the first World Series that the Braves organization ever appeared in was all the way back in 1914. That was a long, long time ago. Tagarlo, do you know what was one of the banger songs of 1914? Mm, I don't know. Maybe something like Al Jolson or something. It was like, Hello, my lady. Hello, my darling. Something like that. I don't know. That's a, that's actually a pretty good guess. Hmm. But this song you actually know, unlike the other one that I told you back in 1871, 1914, people, you listener know this song. 
I'm going to play you one of the biggest hits of 1914. La cucaracha, la cucaracha, ya no puede caminar. Porque no tiene, porque no tiene. Da, 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 da. Cha, cha, cha. Wow. People, la cucaracha came out in 1914. Every wow. school kid in America knows that song. I love it. I love. I, mean, I, I saw that when I saw that the year that they first first went to the World Series. I'm like, nope, we got to do it. What was the Billboard's top 100 song of the year? I'm not saying it was the most popular, but it was one of the popular songs of that year, which is hilarious. And the the Astros, this is their their organization's fourth World Series appearance. And what I like about that is they've actually the Astros have actually been to the World Series as both a National League team back in 2005. And the past three World Series as an American League team. Little quirk. Not a lot of teams go through that, even though the Braves have been around for 150 years. Three cities always have been in the National League. The Astros, they played in both, and they've made the World Series in both. So cool little historical fact about them. Mm-hmm. So Miss Khalil told me, like I said, Braves in five. Game one is Tuesday night, the 26th of October. We'll see what happens, and uh, the Braves pitching should should lead the way. I'm not saying that it's not uh, going to be close. I think it'll happen. Yeah, I think so, too. I think it's going to be the Braves system. And the thing is that whoever wins this World Series, whether it's the Astros or the Braves, this isn't going to be an all-time greatest team of all time. They're not going to be in that conversation. It's, kind of, it's going to be kind of like the 2019 Washington Nationals who were hot at the right time. At the end of the day, Guys like Juan Soto, Ryan Zerberman from Virginia Beach. We talked about him at the top of the show. They're all walking around. Max Scherzer, pitcher with the LA Dodgers. They're all walking around with big, fat championship rings. Who cares if some, if some, if some stupid sports writer doesn't say that you're one of the greatest teams of all time? We'll see. So the next time you hear from us, people, it'll be to recap the amazing World Series that was. And speaking of the World Series, our show sponsor, Tejas Airlines. They want you to know that they connect all of Texas. They has airlines. We serve the good people of the Lone Star State, not by flying far, but by flying often. They has airline. We fly so high, you can touch the face of God. Remember, when you want to attend the World Series in Houston, they has airlines will take you there. Yeehaw, my friend. Yeehaw. Are you going to be taking... They has airline to Houston? Uh, probably not. Sounds like I don't. I, I don't think I want to fly into the face of God just yet. You don't want. <laughs> no, that doesn't mean that they they're gonna crash and die. It's just no. Even still, that's just a lot of light to take in at the moment, man. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, ultraviolet just like we got to be really mindful of that. <laughs> but no, it's funny, but. Moving out of the face of sun, we got to go back and bring some stuff back. The to face history. of God. The face of God, yes. We got to bring some stuff back to history. So that brings us to our next segment, which is the Dewey Decimal System, a.k.a. Lost in History. So on my travels across New York City, I've been finding this image that I've been seeing all over the place. And it's really just simple. It's like a dark blot that looks as though it's like a man like splattered across the wall. You see it in black, you see it in white. And, you know, I thought to myself, I'm like, yo, this is kind of dope. Like, it looks like almost like a Slender Man type, but also just like not. 
but almost like matrixy type of thing too. And you know, I love art and I love street art. Coming up in the you know age of hip hop when you know two turntables and a mic breakdancing and graffiti were a big thing, and also just when I was a kid, graffiti was a really big thing. And back in my old neighborhood in Queens, I would see all of these like street art. So it always like like murals of He Man and the Thundercats and all this other stuff that people around the neighborhood would do. And so even as I like become an adult, I've always walked around and, and paid attention to the street art. And then one day I'm looking, I'm reading the New York Times and it has an article talking about the return of Shadow Man. And so I learned something historical about New York City. So this image that it's not just where I'm seeing it around Midtown and other places within like Chelsea and Hell's Kitchen. It's all over the city. And it's a, rec- it's a return of an iconic street art figure, the Shadow Man, which first was created by artist Richard Hamilton, who is often referred to as the godfather of street art. And people say he inspired Banksy and other underground artists. And back in the early 80s, he started painting these images out of, mur- of, out of outlines of murdered figures on the sidewalk. Which is kind of crazy because that's kind of creepy. Yeah, it's really creepy. But this was at a time when New York City, like, was really like hardcore crazy. Like, think about the late seventies, early eighties. You know, seventies Bronx was burning. You had punk rock. Um, city was almost declaring bankruptcy. It was really, really down and hard. And considering that now, pandemic back in twenty twenty, a lot of economic hardship, a lot of homelessness. A lot, you know, not as heavy crime as it was back then, but still the city's in a phase where it's a little bit off kilter a bit. You know what I mean? It's like it's 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 having that moment of like just hardship. You could feel it. And so seeing images like this pop up was really interesting. But these I didn't even really found it like in this iteration of how you see them. I didn't see them almost as like blood splatter like images. It just looks like somebody just like rising off of like the wall. But this Seattle artist, who's a stealth artist, um, goes by the name of Milbrick. He's actually a former mountain bike racer and industrial designer, has been the one who's been leaking the images because, unfortunately, Richard Hover, Hamilton excuse me, uh, died in 2017. So he's not the one that's doing it. And, you know, for Hamilton, Hamilton, excuse me, man, I can't pronounce people's names today, but Hamilton. It's the reserve line. Yeah, it probably is. Um, initially, when he was doing this, he thought of it as like to pick the psychology of the city when it was a scarier place. And, you know, no, no bureau started putting them up because he felt the city could use a little jolt of social commentary. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's really like commentary. Like for me, I didn't think about it in a commentary type of way. I just think of it almost like as, a, as an elusive figure, like disappearing, like just kind of like you know, a heavy burst of energy or somebody like uh, in, uh, spontaneously combusting on a wall and just a shadow being left over. But, you know, it got me thinking. It got other people thinking because clearly it had to be doing something to get into the New York Times. But that was a little historical uh, tidbit that I, I wanted to bring today. I do like that. It's like the Carlo mentioned, it's all black against brick against the street walls what have you it's so simple as well yeah very simple. it's part of the challenge of modern art or even contemporary probably contemporary art modern art is like 
post World War II. Contemporary means like right now. So like in the year 2100, when they're listening to this episode, it'll you can talk about contemporary art. What what, what was I talking about? No, contemporary art is na- art that's being made now in the year 2100. The art that they make then is going to be contemporary. It's always in the now. Modern art is post World War II, like 1945, post 1945. So the problem with modern art is. I remember seeing this, I think it was either at the Whitney Museum in, in New York or the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, but it, in the gift ga- in the gift gallery, in the gift shop, they had like these little tote bags. I don't know if you've seen it, Carl. I'm sure you have. It says, art, I could do that, but you didn't. Because it seems like it's so simple. And if you, listener, look, go, go ahead and go on the internet and look up Shadow Man, New York. Just put up Shadow Man, New York. And it's so simple but it's so pleasing. And to be fair, it's not like, it's not perfect. It's not like cardboard cutout. It's not like he took a cardboard cutout and just spray painted body parts or images. This person actually did the artwork. I don't know what his tools are, were, are, are with his new guy paintbrush. from Seattle. He literally yeah. was using just like one of those, uh, like a normal paintbrush that you would use when you're painting a house. And I... How would you? How do you feel as a as a citizen of a city? Because these these things always happen in cities of people tagging up cars, tagging up trucks, subways, walls. You're like, well, I don't appreciate that being this being tagged up, but I I don't I, I don't, don't know. Mind it if it, you know what. I look at it like this. I, I understand how it can be interpreted as I sort of like when you see people just putting like a name and it has no real like actual creativity to it. Yeah. It doesn't look good. It just looks like I just wanted to just put my name on something quickly. Yeah. Like that's annoying. With but those big. But when you see like the big letter ones, depending on like sometimes it'd be too gaudy, but I can appreciate the art value behind it. And then. I also like when you see people like certain tags that you know of somebody who actually did it and you see them all over the place, like in places you didn't even think you would see them. And it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. And you could identify, but it doesn't look bad. It kind of, as long as it fits into the environment, I'm good with it. But when it stands out and it's just crappy, you know, I get art is always up to, it is up to interpretation. Anybody can interpret anything as art. You know what I mean? Like, you see someone a couple of years ago at Art Basel who literally just put like a banana with duct tape on it. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? that was back in, I think it was 2019 hour Art Basel yeah, Miami and so Beach. so it's like, you know, it, it's always subjective. But at the same time, when it comes to city, like street art, it is nice when you see that there is some thought behind it. Or even when it's actually art that's been invested by, like a city who does it. Like I know of somebody who gets commissioned by the city to paint um, murals in certain areas. You know what I mean? And that's pretty cool. You know what I mean? Like, because it is bringing the artistic value in a way that is taking in all elements of the city. But then there also is that allure of the Alyssa Street artist who truly is an artist who leaves tags all over the place that gets people thinking, gets people talking. And not only does their artwork translate on you know, a wall or side of a subway, but also on a canvas. And it can be an amazing one. You know what I mean? It's not just, 
I'm taking something to write, yo, G, G, GD's nuts. You know what I mean? Like, nothing like that. But my, my last thoughts on this is that rebellious act of street art has gone away because street art is now a symptom of regentrification because now all the coffee shops, all the sidewalls of cities that are going, not just cities, but neighborhoods in certain cities that are going through regentrification. It's like, oh, it's so cool that they have this local historical person on the side of this massive wall or of an animal or of whatever. And street art, I think, has almost been, the art world has almost pushed to contain it. Because now, at least in Miami, you have the Wynwood Walls where they invite street artists to come and they show their artwork because it's out in the open in the in the in, in the air for six months a year and then they come over they paint over it and they have someone else another painter come in and you think about like shadow man i also think about another basically a street artist in miami who's no longer around this uh artist by the name of purvis young he was african-american he lived in a predominantly african-american community in miami uh, liberty city uh his grandmother was like bahamian he would he would paint and he would just leave it all over the walls in Overtown in Miami, which is a very poor area of Miami. Still, it was, and unfortunately it still is. And not even still, it's actually changing now because of regentrification. Someone like Purvis Young doing his work like he did back in the 70s and 80s wouldn't be as welcomed, just like Shadow Man. This is more of, I, I think real street art is dead. Even though it's kind of cool that the Seattle guy is trying to bring it back, but kind of like a, almost like a movie, like a reboot. Like we're going to yeah. reboot the new Superman. We're going to reboot the new Batman. But guys like Shadow Man and Purvis Young, they're they're in their time. Like you can't do that anymore. You're going to get the, the you. Not only will the authorities not like you, the art world would be like, that's not real art because we can't make money off. Yeah. Uh, it's so sad, but you know what? At the end of the day, I'm glad it's you know been around and I've been able to witness and see that man. So, you know, that's a little trip back to me. And back in history, going to our last and final segment, styling and profiling with Ric Flair. Woo! Sorry, I got caught up for a second. <laughs> Dude, you sounded like a Halloween ghost. I know, but that was for the little Halloween effect. That's the point. It was okay. like, oh, it's like, oh, you know, you oh, know, no, you know, surprised me there. That brought me to like, you know, whatever is like a Hollywood production or something. I'm thinking back to his old like skit on Family Guy, and it's like in the show, and you know, they catch like the grip or somebody who's in the cat, like in mm. production in the actual scene, and they're trying to like get out of it. It was like something that came to my mind, so it was kind of like, do something like. Ooh, you know what I mean? So sorry about that, but woo, people. Thank you. So back in time, cats were adored in ancient Egypt, and we still adore cats today. Did you and ever I'm, see? Just sidebar. Have you ever seen like when you're on like Instagram, you go to reels? Sometimes people will put on like this, like what they presume is like ancient Egyptian music. And I, see, I've seen that one. I've seen that yeah, one. Yeah, the cats like they this go back what, to when they were worshipped as gods yeah. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Some of the reactions are pretty funny. The other ones are just cats just continue to sleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we're here to celebrate Catter Day with L.A. Dodgers relief pitcher 
Tony Gonsolin. We talked about Tony Gonsolin last year. I forget in one of our very first episodes because he is a known cat lover, just like Chicago White Sox pitcher Lucas Giolito. If you go to Lucas Giolito's and Tony Gonsolin's social media accounts, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, they all they have they both have their own cats all over the place. It's hilarious. So on game one, which was on Saturday, which was this past Saturday, not this past Saturday, two Saturdays ago was game one of the National League Championship Series. Tony Gonsolin wore these outrageous cleats. Uh, they were blue cleats in, in the inner sole of one of them had like a really a tabby looking little kitty. And he, on the left cleat, he had fake black hair and on the right cleat he had where the where the where the tongue of the shoe is he had fake light brown hair and he did it to honor both of his cats blue and tigger <laughs> and tony gonsolin has said that quote every single saturday is just a day to bring appreciation to cats it's very easy to rhyme cat with sat so catterday just flows easily it's just a way it's just a day to wear a shirt well, no, never mind. So, end, end quote. It just flows easily, end quote. So, we're celebrating Catter Day with Tony Gonsolin. Did you, what did you think of his cleats? I thought they were pretty cute. I think it's inventive. <laughs> now, I think it's really inventive that I like that he, he really has a sentiment when it comes to his cats. So, he, 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 we love cats here at HPP, and we love baseball players that also love animals, and that's being Lucas Giolito, Tony Gonsolin. And there's a plethora of others, but those are the, these are two who are always like front and center how much they love cats. Uh, and he does love dogs, people. So the dog lovers out there, don't worry. Tony Gonsolin has said, quote, I've always had cats, always had dogs. So I'm pretty even with both of them. Mm. I can't really say I side with either one, but I'd say I lean a little bit more towards cats, end quote. What do you in think the, about that in hmm? terms of like cats and dogs? Like how would, are you more like a cat person or more of a dog person? You know, I, I thought about this a long time, not a long time. I've thought about this throughout the years. And I've always said a dog person is different than a cat person. Almost like someone who likes to cook usually isn't a good baker because when you cook, it's a very eclectic, you can change things as it goes. When it comes to baking, it's scientific and you can't substitute anything with dogs. You, I think it's someone who loves or prefers dogs over cats is they need that companionship, that bond. They need to be given attention versus someone who's who's a cat lover. They love that interaction of we're both independent, but we both need it. We both lean on each other because the feline leans on you for a warm home, food, a couple of cuddles, maybe some belly rubs once in a while. Not too often, once in a while. Well, it depends because there are some people... I think it really depends on how pe- people rear the cats because you'll see some people who really have like very like cuddly, lovey cats. And like I had a cat and she just did not like anybody. Like, I mean, she would come around for a rub, but other than that, she would just like hiss at you or like, you know, she'll walk and be like, you, you have like an understanding with her. But then I've seen other people's cats who just love to cuddle. And dogs, I think it's almost a universality with them being very. I need the companionship aspect. Even if it's not like they need to sleep by your side, but they like being around you. They're happy when you come home. 
they'll come and greet you. Like a cat won't really come and greet. Sometimes they won't come and greet. Oh yeah, they'll no, look not at, at all. you. Just look at you and be like, oh, okay. And then come and like smack you in the face in the yeah. morning when you need to feed them. Yeah, I I think cats are absolutely hilarious. They genuinely are absolutely hilarious, and they don't know it. Dogs can be funny, but they can be like way too destructive. Not to say that cats can't either, but the way a cat acts is just it sometimes they just crack me up. Yeah, a dog can be cute, can be silly, but cats are they're funny at another level. They they're they're like a they're like a headliner comedian. It's like the a dog, sophistication funny to them. Yeah, yeah. It's the dog is more of like an opener. It's the, it's amateur night. It's giving you 5 minutes of something maybe funny or not, but you love them. They look so cute when they do it. You give them sympathy laughs, but cats are like how did you even come up with this? That's true. That was, you know, that's a really good like analogy and way of like categorizing like the uh, humor, you know, the scale of humor between oh, yeah. cats and dogs. Yeah. So again, we love the fact that Tony Gonsolin loves cats. That he celebrates Catterday every time he pitches on a Saturday. He ended up uh, pitching three times in a National League Championship Series. His felines, he didn't he didn't get enough feline power to to help the Dodgers go through, but. Uh, yeah, that's our. Uh, we approve of Tony Gonsolin's awesome cleats with his fake cat fur on <laughs> both of his cleats. And yeah, and we also approve of new listeners that we have. So we want to give a shout out to listeners in San Francisco, Recklinghausen, Deutschland, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Myrtle Beach, North Carolina. And of course, that is a wrap today on this podcast. So thank you for listening where we talk about baseball drinks, Vicente Fernandez, and everything else under the sun. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a review and rate us. It helps with the analytics. You can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at HBP4040 and on Instagram. Our account is Hits for Baseball Podcast. Our drinks will be in the show notes and photos up on Instagram, so give us a shout out. And make sure you join us next time for a brand new episode of HBP, Hits the Baseball Podcast.